All right, The Crave Show. We are back with Chris and Jay Russ, and we have a very special guest with us this week. I, man, I'm, I'm really excited. We've got um, Jim. Jim, tell me your last name. Cowan. C-O-W-A-N, yeah. Yes. And I, Jim, actually, I don't think you know this, but I have been wanting to meet you for a very long time. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, really, because Sharon Arnoy Pilcher, she's been, she's been, we've been working together for quite a while probably like almost three years and um she just has really kind of bragged on you quite oh, a bit wow. <laughs> she's well, told me nice quite to a hear. bit yeah just a, about about really just the amount of knowledge and experience that you have concerning um canopy flight but specifically if i'm if i'm not mistaken um crew work like crw canopy relative work so absolutely, yeah. Um, I am man, I was really excited when Jay Russ said, Hey, I've got Jim Cowan. He, he might be able to join us. Oh, dude, I was so stoked. I was like, Yes, do it. Let's get him. Let's talk to him. Yeah, man. As soon as he asked, I said, I'm all over it. I'd love to be a part of it. Yeah. So I'm I'm really glad that you joined us tonight. Um awesome. really cool. Very cool. Yeah. Jay Russ, how you been doing, man? I'm doing well. Um, I'm in uh Arizona. Jim and I are working kind of together on our on a course right now and um, other than this, uh, this temperature is not really my, uh, preferred no. world. Uh, it's, it's great. <laughs> I love the work that we're doing in these courses and, uh, I love being out here. Um, if it was just, it's about to start raining. So that, that'll help. What, what do you, when you say courses, what do you guys, what do y'all teach them? Um, Jim and Jim works for flight one and, um, I, I'm a subcontractor through Arizona arsenal and, um, I, I'm not going to talk about it too much, to be honest, because we work for the, we work for the military and, um, they like to, to keep their stuff in house. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, let both of us assist with, um, different courses throughout the year, uh, teaching our military guys, how to be, um, better canopy pilots and how to be better free fallers. That's awesome. That's so yeah. cool. I think that's yeah. really neat that our, that our military, that they spend money on that, that they see the value in it and that they're willing to, to bring out people who know what's going on. Jim, were you going to say, did you want to say something? No, I just agree. It's a, uh, it's pretty amazing uh, that a lot of the groups that we do get to work for, especially with flight one and, and with all the contractors that are, that are brought in by arsenal and by other groups that um, you got to be at a really, really high level to be invited out there. So the fact that Jay Russ is out there, the fact I'm out there, we're pretty fortunate to be there. And, and, uh, we get to do some cool stuff with some really cool people. And, uh, sometime after nine 11, they, they figured out, go out and find the SMEs and everything they do. Mm -hmm. And man, they, they certainly shine when they found the, the people in this industry. Okay. M maybe I'm going to make myself look like a, a dummy, but what is SME? Uh, subject matter expert. Okay. I, they used the, the I, military. I figured it was something about expert at the end, but I couldn't yeah, do that as yeah. an <laughs> The military is very good at everything they do, um, yeah. but they decided to be the best in the world. We got to go find the people that do it just that every day, mm. not everything mm. like they do, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, there's a group of people that are very fortunate to get to work in that world. And we, we are fortunately some of the privileged. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I was, um, that just made me think of, my oldest son uh, finished his freshman year 
at college last year. And so then this year he's kind of trying to figure out, he, he didn't get into the engineering program that he wanted to get into. So he's kind of trying to decide like, okay, what am I going to do? And I was helping him look at different, um, you know, different degree plans, different options, um, different colleges within the university that where he's at and courses of study. And there just really wasn't anything super interesting to him. And he was kind of feeling a lot of pressure. I think he was putting pressure on himself to like figure out exactly what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. Yeah. He's like, man, dude, just like relax, like stop pressuring yourself, find yeah, something that you're sure. a little bit interested in, like just, just a little bit interested in, and then tell yourself, I'm going to start working towards becoming an expert at that thing. I want to be an expert. And then I said, if you get 10 steps down the way, 50 steps, hundred steps, whatever, and you realize you don't like it, fine, do something else. But have in your mind that you want to become an expert at something. Yeah. And, um, I think that's, a. so he, I don't know if that helped him or not. Um, for me, it's helpful to think about that, you know, but absolutely. Like that, that's, that's great, when, great, great idea. When you're an expert at something, you can, you can help people. You can benefit others. You can be a blessing to people who want to know what you know. And, um, whether you make money off it or not, I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you're just enjoying getting to teach and instruct and share with people. Right. But I think that's, that's a really cool part of our kind of the society that we have now and with YouTube and with everything like that people are able to be experts at something and then share that. Not even if it's just like drawing pictures with a, you know, milk and a crayon or something weird, you know, like yeah. people can, can share that stuff. I think it's so cool. Yeah. We are lucky. We live in an age where, um, you have the ability to showcase your talents potentially mm -hmm. and a, uh, a potential venue to use them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, real, real quick before, before we get going too deep, I just want to, um, say to everybody, you know, the audience and people listening, um, whether listening live or on YouTube or pod, Apple podcasts or Spotify or wherever, um, like we've been saying before, we, we hope that this, uh, a benefit to you guys. We hope that you're learning some cool stuff, um, hearing some things that maybe you may not be able to hear, getting introduced to people you may not have known before. Um, and we would love to hear from the audience. We would, if you're listening on a regular basis or just one show at a time or whatever, we want to hear from you, whether it's comments, questions, topics that you would like us to discuss. Um, and like we said before, if, if you have questions or topics that we don't know about, we'll, we'll find the answers or we'll find somebody who does know and we'll bring them on the show and we'll talk about it. Uh, cause that's what we want to do. And if you have questions or comments, uh, questions about your own flight skills, what you're doing, you have a video that you want to share with us. We'll watch that video. We'll, um, maybe even show it on the show and give you some, some free coaching, free instruction. That's what Crave is all about. We're trying to help people around the world, skydivers around the world, be better flyers, be safer skydivers. Um, that's what we want to do. Just share knowledge and information that we can all be better and safer and have more fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, real quick, we were talking just a minute ago. I want to dig into this a little bit before, before Jim got on JRS, we were talking about dreams. <clears throat> I want, I'm interested to know, like, cause you said it. So I want you to share your dream. What, Jim, uh, I'm going to have Jay rest share, but do you have any recurring 
skydiving dreams that you can share with us. Jay, oh, so Jay Russ was telling us one. Tell, I, I want you to repeat, Jay Russ. What is the the recurring skydiving dream that you have? Well, um, mine is uh, Jim. I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, last week I I came from Chicago, which is Central Standard, and um, knew that I was in a different time zone, but because Arizona doesn't doesn't participate in the the daylight savings. I missed the podcast. So Chris was trying to reach me. I wasn't paying attention to my phone. And about right. a half an hour late, uh, he had to go do such other stuff when I finally figured out that I was in the wrong time zone. So uh, related to that, I have a recurring dream that I would say is kind of a nightmare where it, when I was, I used to race motorcycles and when I was racing motorcycles, uh, at the race was going to start and I couldn't find my helmet. And then there'd be a pile of helmets and I knew mine was in there and they all look kind of like my helmet, but they weren't the right one. <laughs> oh, man. And then I'd find the pile of boots and I'd find one of my boots, but I couldn't find the other one. And the, the race <laughs> is going to go. And uh, nowadays I, I actually have two recurring skydiving dreams. The one is similar where I can't find my rig and then I find a pile of rigs and I, I can't find the right one. And then I, my, I find my helmet, but I don't get the camera and, and, and the, the plane that the alcohol happens and I, I, I don't have my stuff. And I, I think it's generally, I, I plan too many things in the day and I end up running out of time that happens all the time. And then also just the feeling that I like to be fully prepared um, when I go to do <laughs> things, I, I want to think it through and I want to be ready for whatever that is and missing the podcast. So I'll have that recurring nightmare once every six months, once a year. Um, and when it happens, I wake up and I kind of examine like, what's going on right now that I, I feel like this. Um, I had it three nights in a row after I missed the podcast. Wow! So I, I, I shared that with Chris because I felt pretty bad about missing it, and you know. And I was super being, mad. I was, know. I was cussing yeah. him, and not. <laughs> he's being nice about it, but you know, I said I would be there, and that means something to me. So I, it was, it was a bummer that I missed it. Oh man! Um, the other one I have, and I don't know if you guys have this one, but Steph said she also has this sometimes where I'm in free fall, and my main doesn't work, and I pull my reserve, and it doesn't work. And I bounce, but I just get back up and pick up my gear and go back into the plane as if everything's okay. And what? Just carry on. Yeah. You in your dream, you hit the ground and bounce. Yep. And, and then I you're just, fine. I just stand back up and I'm okay. And Whoa, that's I crazy. Pick my crap up and get on the plane. We have a couple of friends that have that same thing happen, and then they hide the, they put their main back in and make it look like everything's fine. They come yeah. walking in like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a that is a crazy dream. That yeah. is pretty crazy. Is it I, is not... it in your dream, Jairus? Is it scary when you when you're oh, yeah. falling? And it's not. It is for sure. Yeah, like okay. I know that it's going wrong, and uh, there's been times where like the main comes out and I let you know I cut it away, and then the reserve doesn't come out, and I'm 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 reaching back there and trying to you know oh, yank the reserve out and, and fight, and then I hit the ground. I'm like, oh, but I'm okay. Uh, which obviously it wouldn't be, but that's uh, crazy. That's, but that's what the dream is. I have this dream where I, I, you know, I throw my pilot chute and my main comes out, but then it just falls with me at normal free fall mm -hmm. speed. It just keeps falling <laughs> fat, like right with me, right next to me. I'm looking, I'm like, what the heck is going on? I'm like shaking it and messing with it and nothing <laughs> happens. Wow. It's weird. I had that actually <laughs> happen on a jump once. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> 
It's going to be great. I swear to God, it really did. <laughs> did you see? Hold on, hold on, Jim. Did you, Jay Rest? Did you see my post on Facebook today? I <laughs> no. posted saying, I, I said, you know, we're going to have an awesome episode tonight. We've got Jim Cowan getting on the show, and I said, I, I'm expecting to hear some harrowing stories. So <laughs> yes. here we go. Harrowing yes. story number this one. Is probably one of my first harrowing stories. I was, uh, it was, I was 18. I've been skydiving for two years. I had a couple hundred jumps and, uh, and back in the day, you know, early eighties, late seventies, whatever we, you know, nobody broke off above three, five and nobody threw above two. You know, if you threw a pilot shoot above two grand, people wouldn't jump with you. It was like, that dude's dangerous, you know, but you could also open next to each other. Cause we had seven cell, big, thick seven cell canopies, you know, so you could get away with that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, track off from an eight way bust through two grand, reach back, throw my pilot shoot and nothing. I look up and it's a little ball. It half hitched. So I had the half hitch pilot shoot malfunction. So I'm like, no worries. I reach back with my other hand, pull and I go and I go to throw the, I pull the pin and I throw the bag and I actually flung it pretty good. And as it come off, I see the rubber band stretch out and then come straight back at me just floating across the air right at me and lay on my shoulders. So that thing is just following the same speed as me. Of course, I'm wearing this huge, big suit because it's, you know, 1980. I'm wearing this gigantic suit that I made that I put my leg straps inside of, and I had sewn a BOC onto my rig. Another reason people wouldn't jump with me because I had this pilot suit that you couldn't see, you know. And, man, there it was, sitting on my shoulders. I'm going through about 1,400 feet. And uh, so I just go head down, grab my handles, and just as I'm about to cut away, my main opens, and I saddle out at a gram. So there it was, just floating there, coming right back to me, and gets oh, run man. on my reserve. <laughs> so that's why I learned about half-hitch pilot shoots. Dude. It's like, it, it's going to be an hour of this, Chris, so just say it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do, I do got some stories. That's true. Oh, my so, God. So, if we yeah, could, yeah. just before we go too far, we, I, 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 I want to, because there's a, but there's going to be people listening to this who don't know you, and a few that do. Um, yeah. Can you tell us, when did you start jumping? So I uh, made my first jump in uh, June of 1978. Uh, okay. My, right after my, shortly after my 16th birthday. Okay. I, uh, my parents owned a, a small drop zone in St. Louis. It was rival to Kirk Verner's dad's drop zone. Kirk was a drop zone brat in St. Louis, and I was a drop zone brat in St. Louis. And our dads okay. had rival drop zones when we were kids. Nice. Um, anyway, so yeah, I started working there when I was 10, packing T-10s. And me and my brother, who was a year and a half younger than me, we were the main packers. My mom was the master rigger. And uh, my mom and dad ran the place, and, and we were doing 30 first jump students every Saturday, every Sunday out of a, you know, a fleet of Cessnas. <laughs> Wait, you were, were you were packing rigs at 10 years old? At 10 years old. Yep. And other, other people were jumping these. Oh yeah. We were packing, we'd pack 50, 50 parachutes a weekend. Yeah. Two sport, bucks a rig. Sport parachutes or tandems or what? No, they were, they were T10 round parachutes set up. Were they sport. even doing tandems at that time? Oh, was no, that even was, a thing? Yeah, no, it was only static line was the only progression. Oh my static goodness. Line was it. Yeah. What, what is a T10? What is that? It's a big round, thirty-five foot diameter round parachute, big green, ugly thing. Okay. And my dad had, my mom and dad had rigged these tape. All the, we had five packing tables with tension devices, and each table had its own fan. 
So we'd stretch it out, throw it out, and then pull it tight and flick the fan, and it would flake itself. It was awesome. We could make it. It was pretty fast, you know. How how long would it take you to pack one? Uh, we could do one in under ten minutes. Oh, that's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. And it's stolen lines fast. and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But the, th- and- the whole thought was the fan. The fan. You didn't have to do the, all this hand flaking and shit. It was just like yeah. flick, 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 flick. Turn the fan off, lay it down, done. So who came up with that idea? The fan. My dad, I think. It was my mom or dad, one of the two. That's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. smart. Anyway, so I started jumping when I was sixteen, and and then uh, never never stopped. I've never do, been. On do you current. remember what day? You said June of seventy eight. Do you remember yeah. what day? Yeah, it was on a Saturday. The drop zone that my parents owned, they had just sold. Um, but my, they, I had, they had to allow me to go through my student progression with them for free. And they were hopping around from airport to airport at the time. Cause they had got, you know, they had got kicked out of the airport they were on. And, uh, so they ended up, you know, we were in a small town called Sullivan, Missouri. That happened to be that day. And, uh, so it was where I made my first jump para commander on my first jump. And I had a stand up landing right on the target. Nice. Wow. My mom, That's my mom cool. was my instructor. My dad was my jump master. <laughs> That's Air awesome. commander was probably the hot shit at that point. <laughs> that was the, yeah. I mean, I started on, on that parachute, you know, I had 90 jumps before we went to Ram air and then, and I, I've been jumping so long that we had this, I had the smallest Ram air they made, which is a, a thing called a strato flyer. It's a little five cell. We had a safety flyer reserve. So it was the same reserve, but man, no matter where I opened, I've, if it wasn't right over top, I didn't make it back. That thing was just a dart to the ground, you know? And uh, so then I sewed two cells onto it. I made two cells and attached them to it. And then I got a little bit better glide out of it. <laughs> and then what? then we what? went to seven cells, and then it went to fast nine cells, and and then downsize, <laughs> downsize, downsize. And then, then after I get to a certain age, I start upsize, upsize, upsize. <laughs> That's where I'm at. So- Jim, I mean, this number is going to be absolutely astonishing because I know your jump numbers, but I want you to tell everybody. But then for anybody who has ever seen a round parachute landing, this is the reason why our D license is 500 jumps because nobody made it to 500 jumps because you had to land a round parachute. But tell us, please, your jump numbers. Well, yeah, so I broke 24,000 last year. Um, I've got I've got all of it on paper and on log books and stuff. So I was always curious my whole life. I never, I always wanted, never wanted to be one of those jumpers that never knew how many jumps they really had. And always told everybody they had four times more than they really had. So I always wanted to be a real number guy, you know? And so that's where I'm at, which for 45 years of jumping, isn't that many. Uh, But I, I never was a professional in it until 92. So I was just a weekend jumper on jumping on Sundays and Saturdays, uh, you know, from 78 through 92. What would you, what would you estimate are your percentages? If you had to say like, you know, what number is free fly? What number is belly? What number is crew? Yeah. So probably around 6,000 canopy formation, uh, primarily all competition oriented. Uh, we did four way rotation and eight speed. That was our specialty. And that's, what I got to go to the world championships, you know, a whole bunch of times, uh, representing the U S doing those events. And the rotation okay. event was just, you know, four, four way going as fast as you can from the top to the bottom. And the eight speed was the craziest shit, man. It was so much fun. Eight guys 
jump out of the plane. The watch starts when you step off the first guy, steps off the plane. The watch stops when number eight has a legal grip and on the formation. So it was pretty much hit that thing as fast as you could hit it and still keep it from wrapping. <laughs> so that was, and that was fun. What, what would you, um, can you, can you summarize your, um, competition results? Oh yeah, we, we did pretty good. Uh, I won, uh, four gold, four silver and a bronze at the world level. Not quite as good as you guys. That's for sure. Um, but we had won four way rotation. We had taken silver. We had won it, taken silver. And same with eight speed. We won it and then silver, win it and silver. And, uh, and then eventually, you know, we were, cause it was every two years, like everybody else, you know, we go to nationals yeah. the on year and go to world meet on the off year. And we did that 1990 through 2003. Cool. And just again, to blow people's minds, how many times have you wrapped Jim? <laughs> well, well, hold, hold my, on, explain, explain, give some well, clarification. What, what do well, you mean by that? Because I know what I mean, but I'm going to let Jim explain a wrap. Yeah, please. Okay. Well, doing competition level, um, we would push the boundaries and see how fast we could go and see what the margins were. We were shaving off, you know, tenths of a second in our transitions and, and, and tenths of a second in eight speed as well. So we were pushing the edge pretty hard and it was pretty much go as fast as you can till we wrap it and back it off a notch. <laughs> and uh, so I've been in over 300, at least 300 that I got out of. Um, I've had to cut away from entanglements 15 times. Um, and then I've had other situations where I've had 140 times where at least one of the other people around me had to cut away. So um, a wrap. Yeah. If you, if you were just explain to me, explain to me as if I know nothing, what is a yeah, wrap? What does no that mean? Worries, easy. Yeah. Because we're grabbing onto each other's shoots. It's possible that we kind of don't do it exactly right. And somebody's parachute gets, goes around someone else or you pass through someone's lines. And now the parachutes aren't flying. Normally they're big, you know, they're wadded up fabric. That's not pointed in the right direction. <laughs> and typically jumpers can become entangled in the fabric of the other jumper or they can become entangled in the lines underneath the bottom skin of the other jumper okay so you say wrap basically the the canopy or the lines actually wrap around another flyer or another canopy or something like they actually get entangled and wrap around one another and stop flying correctly that, and, that, and, that's correct and in the canopy, in the CF world, the canopy formation world, some people like to distinguish a wrap as being just fabric. And okay. some people like to distinguish entanglement being under the bottom skin, being in the lines. Okay. Yeah. So some people differentiate those two words. They those do. Two. They do a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Now, to me, I've never done any kind of crew work, can canopy relative work for... I think most of the people who are going to listen to this are skydivers, um, yeah. but I did post on Facebook telling people like, Hey, this is going to be super interesting for even if you don't skydive. <laughs> cool. So I want to kind of clarify a little bit, but absolutely to me as a skydiver, even though I don't know, I've never done any crew work. I've never done any CRW. That sounds extremely dangerous. When you, when you say that you've been in over 300 situations where you had a wrap or an entanglement, I mean, that sounds super dangerous. Can you, I mean, is it or not? I mean, what? Um, he's still here. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what? Well, uh, well, let me say this. That's a, you make a really good point. Your chances of becoming involved in an entanglement go up very, very dramatically if you do canopy formation. Almost everyone that I know that's been involved in canopy entanglements and wraps, we're doing canopy formation. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so your instinct is correct in that <laughs> right. regard. Um, so there's definitely an added element of risk. However, it can be mitigated with the proper equipment and the proper training and doing it at, at appropriate altitudes. Okay. Um, those are the big things there. However, there still is risk in it because you are physically grabbing onto other parachutes. And, and you know, there are times that that happens recreationally and competition wise where it wasn't meant, but it does happen. Mm. It's a, And it's a little more physical than most other forms of skydiving in that it's more sustained physical more sustained time pulling on a riser or holding a riser trying to keep a wing in a certain position you okay. know because we do all kinds of weird manipulation with the wing that typically involves a riser and a toggle or a or a two risers or a, you know a front riser and a, and a other side toggle all kinds of weird combos that that are pretty physically hard to do um and that's one of the reasons and then having the, the right equipment also precludes a lot of people from it okay and ju just for I, like i said most people listening are skydivers say they, they know what you're talking about when you say risers and lines and stuff like that but if someone's listening that's not a skydiver basically the risers are the the <clears throat> the webbing the fabric that comes up directly from the harness the rig the the container that we're wearing the harness that the lines connect to so when uh jim is talking about pulling on risers he's basically in a sense talking about pulling on the lines of the canopy N not not specifically the lines but what the lines are connected to uh just for if anybody's listening that's not a skydiver so, so jim you said about six thousand crew related to competition that leaves eighteen thousand jumps roughly <laughs> yeah i've uh you know i've probably got several hundred wingsuit um a few hundred free fly um mostly belly stuff and belly organizer i was even a belly organizer at the world free fall convention a few years um and then uh most of my jumps were like i don't know eight nine thousand jumps on stiletto 120s and then obviously then went to to try 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 cell canopies after that and i typically jump i have a, a velo 90 and a velo 103 that i've been jumping forever and now i just went to my valkyries and 96s um, but nice. yeah, for that, and then I have probably almost a thousand stadium demo jumps. A My thousand. first one being when I was 18 years old at night into Bush Stadium in St. Louis for a Cardinals baseball game. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. awesome. That's so cool. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry, you guys, y'all keep talking. I'll be right back. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no worries. So I, I had a couple of questions, Jim, that sure. in spite of us working together that I've, I've never been able to ask. Um, and then a couple more actually related to what you're talking about, but with respect to the, um, the wraps, is there, is there any one of those that stands out more than others and, and why? That I've been involved in? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there are a couple. Um, one was one that I had, uh, we were trying out some new people for our eight way team. Um, and they were people that we knew in the canopy formation uh family 
who was also a competitor. These were usually guys who were competitors with other teams that we would invite to join our four-way team for to do eight-way. And uh, I had a guy one time, we were building a, a, a vertical formation. Uh, it was either the octoplane or the kite. I'm not sure which one it was. And the guy below me who had docked on me was taking a grip. Well, he got wrapped. He got a canopy, went around him, and he was entangled in lines. And before we talked or made any decisions together or did anything, he cut away. And when he did, I was in his lines. And when he cut away, those lines all just engulfed me. Um, The canopy that his canopy, which was pushing down on my head, was then released. And it went behind me and then reinflated. When it did, it just hogtied me. Lines wrapped everywhere around me. And then the canopy behind me inflated, started going crazy, pulled me away from the person who was holding on to me. And so now I'm downplaning towards the earth and I'm just ripping and peeling away lines and trying to get them off of me, making sure nothing pulls my handles. And I get all the lines down to one leg and I'm pushing them off my leg and then they cinch super tight around my ankle. So the canopy is tied to my ankle. My canopy is now free, but this one behind me is downplaning me to the earth. So it's pulling me pretty pretty hard, you know, it's stretching me pretty tight, and I'm passing through two grand. And there's a moment where I cannot reach this other canopy. I can't bring my leg up. I have two knives on me, but I can't use either of them. And so I'm thinking I'm running out of options here real quick. And I swear, I swear, swear to God, T-Russ, I had this moment where I thought, if I go in like this, this is going to ruin my credibility. I better figure this shit out. (laughs) I swear, I really thought that. It was the weirdest feeling. And so then it hit me. Okay, I can't do anything about this parachute that's tied to my leg. But I'm still connected to my parachute. And it has risers and toggles that I can manipulate. Reached up, grabbed my toggles, pulled them down to my hips. And then the whole thing went from vert, from a down plane to the lower canopy started getting inverted. It was a little bit inverted underneath me. And once that lower canopy started to invert, it brought the tension off. As soon as the tension came off, I picked my leg up and I cut, cut it right off and was freed. And I was about 1,200 feet when I, when I got it loose. So that was probably my scariest one uh, because that I had no control of the situation. It happened pretty low. We were we were under two, we were about two five or just under two five when it happened. And uh, so yeah, that was probably probably the one that sticks out of my mind because of that. Now I have another one that is really scary, but that was where I ended up having to land two canopies. What what year was that? The one, the story you just told. Uh, that was, I'm gonna say either '96 or '97, I think. Yeah. So you had been jumping. You had been jumping for about 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I started. Yeah, I started in '78. Yeah. So you were like late 30s, probably. Yep. Yep. Okay. Early 30s. Yeah. Man. I, Man. Chris, you can chime in. I wrote eight or 10 questions here. So I'm going to fire away. I I love this. Just keep going, man. I did that a little bit extemporaneously. So there there may not be good uh, sort of flow from one question to the next, but um, 
hopefully at some point it'll make sense to whoever's listening. So I would say, uh, just for the people who are listening, um, that uh, I, I'm coming up on 21,000 jumps. I have no crew experience and zero reps. And like a lot of people in the sport, I think that the idea of a rep is pretty scary. Um, yeah. And when I, when I it listen, should be. you know, yeah, it should be. Um, however, uh, and I, I think this will ring true of you, Jim, because I know you're, you've also talked about base jumping. Uh, my, one of my former teammates, he was a base jumper and he used to point his canopy at the cliff and then try to run his feet along the cliff wall, which I thought was a little insane until he said, well, if I'm going to maybe get in that situation when I'm not ready, shouldn't I try to be ready? Um, and so with that in mind, your 300 wraps puts you in a very good position for an unintentional wrap. Uh, <laughs> when you didn't mean to necessarily be doing that, your mind's not in that place, but, um, Again, not having been in a wrap, uh, I think that it's important to stay calm in those moments. And that would give you, I think, a, a lot of mental preparation. And so with all that in mind, do you recommend crew to everyone? Do you think it's a, a part of the sport that you would like to see more people do? That's a really great question. And for the reason that you just said it, absolutely. Um, the biggest thing about people trying canopy formation is doing it in the right environment with the right equipment and the right, you know, the right situation. It's totally safe and it's pretty exciting. Um, uh, however, there is that increased risk of, of being in an entanglement and some people kind of want to dabble in it to see if it does happen to see how they would react and see if they could, you know? So I will say the first time that I was in an entanglement with my teammates, which happened to be my brother and my two best friends, and uh, so it was freaking terrifying. It was like, I want out, get me out of this, <laughs> you know? And of course I'm going a thousand miles an hour and the ground's right there, but I'm really at 5,000 feet with a spinning whirling mess, you know? So yeah, it is freaking terrifying. The second time you do it, it is freaking terrifying. But then by the time you get to the third, fifth, to sixth or seventh, as long as you're not under two grand, it's not as terrifying. Now, all of mine have been in totally controlled environments with people that I trusted and knew and, and, and knew would do the right thing. The only time was when we're trying out new guys, like what happened to me on that one, you know? So I never expected that from a, a guy who I had competed against, you know? So, yes, for that reason, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think crew is hard to find the the situation where you have the canopies and the people that will teach you. But anyone that I know who has done an event came away with, from it very enlightened, saying, you know what, that's not for me, but man, I am glad I did it. Or man, I want to do more of that. <laughs> and I, I think it's super critical in, in my mind to follow this up with um, a, a quick anecdote that I, I organized a boogie a few years ago in Iowa and a great little drop song. And the, the following week, a couple of people were injured that decided to try crew. Okay, great. And got no coaching beforehand, yeah. not a bit, um, using the wrong canopies um, and, and no idea of what to do when it went wrong, which it did. And, the, and they were lucky, honestly, to survive that. So I, I want to dovetail that original question with, 
how would someone get started in your opinion? What is, what is the right way? Yeah, definitely look for one of the CF camps all around the country. There's a bunch of guys uh, called the brew dogs up North that run a bunch of camps. Um, there's a, a whole bunch of other guys do camps at Sebastian and, and Lake Wales. And there's places around the country. They are happening. And, you know, they have, they have a very open environment, man. The crew dogs, I don't know if you've been around them. They're, they're a pretty uh, colorful bunch <laughs> is the best way to describe. That's very <laughs> they're, very, they're very colorful and they accept anybody. And, and mm -hmm. so if somebody wants to learn, man, you talk about, about a bunch of people who are excited that, that you want to come and check it out and they will definitely enhance it, but you got to go find it. You can't do it at your home drop zone. You can't do it with your buddy with the wrong equipment. You got to find it, you know, and you got to seek it out um, or know when it's coming to your town. Well, I, I want to ask be, a lot, similar lines and, and you, it may be the exact same answer and that's fine if it is, but cause I, you know, I've got some skydiving friends, you know, when we, when we jump together, sometimes if we pull just a, a tiny bit high, you know, mm -hmm. they'll try to fly their canopy close to me. And I'm always like, it scares me so much. And, and I'm, I think I'm a risk taker usually like growing up, I always like to do crazy fun stuff and, but something about under canopy, I'm like, get away from me. I'm so terrified. So what, what is the message? What is, what would you say to all the skydivers out there? Like as far as canopy relative work, crew work, like what do they need to, what's the message that they need to hear? Not, not to say, Hey, don't do it. I'm not saying that, but like, what do they need to hear as far as um, kind of like what Jay Rush is saying, not, not just getting into it, but just their, their mindset and their attitude. Cause I've got some friends who it's almost like they don't, they don't see the, that's how it feels to me is that they don't see the danger. And I am so terrified of it that it seems so scary when I see pictures of like a 16 way diamond, I'm like, how in the world that seems terrifying. Mm -hmm. So to balance me out and to balance them out, what, what would you say? Those are great points. First of all, your natural instinct of being afraid, it's awesome. It's working. <laughs> you should be. And especially even even if, like for instance, I, I, everybody's, a lot of people are doing big canopy flocking jumps. And that seems to be things that are happening. But people are getting into much bigger formations than they should be in. You should do it with a couple people. Just like if you're going to go free fly or angle fly or whatever, you don't just talk 12 people out there and go <laughs> see what happens. You know, yeah, you got to build, you got to build up to it. So if you have somebody that wants to fly close to you, it's perfectly safe to do no contact canopy flight. It's awesome. It's fun. It's what I teach every day for flight one. I get mm. to do it every day as my daily job, you know? Um, so it's really fun, but with the right environment. And so, um, as far as contact where you're going to touch parachutes, don't do it with anybody that hasn't got experience with it because mm. it will almost always end wrong. It will mm. end not the way you want. Um, and a lot of people are making contact and even really good canopy pilots who are, you know, st you know, stacking and, and, and making contact docks with their highly loaded tri-brace canopies, you know, kind of like XRW, but with really little canopies. And that's great if you don't put a lot of tension on them, 
but they're not made for the, the kind of loads that you can put on the line attachment points. And if you go doing that with somebody and you tear one up, now you're cutting away maybe low, you know? So as long as things are done up high in the right environment and the right people, um, it's totally safe to do. I just like anything else, work your way up to it. Yeah. So as far as gear, is there certain, are there certain canopies or gear that it's just like, Hey, do not do crew work. Don't do CRW. If you've got this kind of gear, absolutely don't do it. Or you need this kind of like, like what are the gear considerations? What do we really need to know? Yeah. You, that's another great point. It's one of the things that really precludes people from doing it. If you're going to do contact stuff, you got to do it with CF canopies and background lines, especially to learn. You don't want any type of, of high performance back or high performance lines that, you know, that are super thin because if you do get in a wrap, it can wrap around the muscle and deglove your arm, deglove your calf in certain situations. So you want thick background lines if you're going to be making contact. And okay. again, you want to do it with someone who knows how to do it, not just a couple of guys. Hey, let's go see what happens because almost everything you think will happen. So um, those kind of canopies are typically seven cells, okay. lower aspect ratio canopies, not very high performance in the landing, not fun to swoop. Um, you can swoop them, but you still have to touch down at super high speed because they don't have much lift left in the lower speed phase of the swoop, you know? Hmm. So <laughs> is it, maybe, maybe this is a, an inaccurate assumption, but is a canopy that is good for crew work Maybe also typically that same type of canopy would be good for wingsuiting? Uh, very possibly in that in that for wingsuiting, you need something that you can open up and not have to cut away from line twists, right? Yeah. So um, canopy formation parachutes typically are, are designed to open really fast. So you never really want to ever take them to terminal because they, okay. they can actually hurt you okay. uh, if you take them to terminal. So that's another big difference there. Um, but yes, seven cells, lower aspect ratios, but it doesn't have to be because, you know, there's even now, there's a couple tricell canopy formation parachutes now that are, and even the guys who are at the world championship levels now, they're jumping with smaller lines, but they have experience and they know that, hey, if this goes bad, we got to get out of it quickly. Whereas with Dacron lines and less experience, you know, you want to take your time and not just start pulling handles. Yeah. Try try sell what i don't know what's a cross mean, brace what? canopy yeah, cross brace. oh okay there okay. you go yeah yeah cross brace being you know real thin airfoil that goes mm -hmm. much faster um typically so generates more lift uh, so you're saying the there are size. some people doing doing crw with with those canopies there are at the okay. very the, top at the very top of the food chain yeah the guys at okay. the world at the world championship level so that yeah. that's we, we need to clarify like those guys really have tons of experience, lots yep. of, I mean, they know what they're doing. They're, they're at the top of the. Yep. And they know okay. what they've been in entanglements. They know what the danger is of yeah. this, of adding the element of these extra thin lines. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Um, Thank you. Just moving forward. Uh, just because I know you do a lot of other things, Jim, and there's a lot of skydivers who like to participate in not only multiple aspects of the sport. They want to angle fly. They want to wingsuit. They want to maybe crew. Um, but 
can you talk about just a little bit about how some of your crossover sports are benefited by your crew works? I know you, that you also base jump and I think that you paraglide or hang glide. Um, and, uh, and how would you say that your, your canopy experience has sort of allowed you to cross into other things? That's a great question. And, and yeah, man, my canopy formation experience opened a lot of doors, a lot of doors for me. One, because, you know, we really ex started exploring the very uh, edges of what canopies can do. And our, my team was called Quantum Leap. That was the name of our team. And we started in, in August of 89 and we won the world championships in March of 1990. And uh, so it was pretty, pretty fast, pretty fast paced, right? So I got to do a lot of cool stuff with the wings, you know. Um, my uncle, when, when I was 15, my uncle owned a hang gliding school in St. Louis. So I started flying hang gliders before I started skydiving. And uh, so that definitely crossed over. You know, going back, going to a, from a hang glider, from a Rogolo wing to, a, you know, with, with stiffeners and all kinds of, you know, a little bit higher performance to a round parachute was a downgrade for me. Major downgrade, you know. Um, so then um, that that definitely carried over into flying flying wings. But even that, the parachutes were so much slower and so much different than my hang glider. You know, the hang glider had way more performance than any of the parachutes did. Fast forward, I got rid of the old hang glider, whatever, bought a powered paraglider in 1999. Was taking off on it, got real steep. I went to let off a little bit of the power. I let off all the power, crashed broke the prop so i thought you know what i should probably learn how to fly the wing before i add the motor so i came out to flagstaff for two weeks and did a, a paragliding school with a guy named dixon white who was the kind of the safety guy for paragliding back in the day and started flying paragliders and then i fell in love with paragliding and uh, i'm not a super experienced paraglider pilot but i've got some pretty epic flights i get to do some pretty cool stuff um, that completely crossed over into flying smaller, faster wings, you know, even though they're, uh, I, I like to tell people that the difference between paragliding without a motor and, and skydiving is the most, uh, contrast you can have. The paraglider is very peaceful and quiet and graceful and smooth and low energy. Right. And then skydiving, it's fast and furious, ah, you know? And uh, so I love that contrast. I like that. And the things you get to see in nature on a paraglider, no one else on earth sees. You see the coolest stuff. I mean, flying five feet over the top of eagles nests and stuff, you know, it's stuff you don't get to do anywhere, you know, no other way. So I love that. But all of those, man, when it comes to flying fabric wings, flying any fabric wing definitely has crossover. Now with all the speed wings and all that, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Um, oh, base so jumping, base jumping, base jumping, yeah. quick hands and being really good on, on, on opening parachutes fast and getting them going the way you want to go. Total canopy formation stuff, man. Guys who do see up make really super quick, quick studies on base jumping because they're already on those rear risers before that thing's even out of the bag. Almost to the point in in my mind that it would some sort of extensive canopy experience would be. I mean, there's no requirements for base jumping in the sport is what it is. But if, if you could make a requirement, that seems like it would be a good one. 
It would be, be a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Wait, what? Cool. What would what requirement? Uh, if you if you could say you know it's two hundred jumps in USPA to wear a camera, could you do two hundred crew jumps before you do your first base jump so that mm -hmm. you understand how the canopy is going to react? Or, or what you need to do in a situation where the canopy doesn't open the way that you think it should, mm. uh, you get an off-heading opening, whatever, just to get that ingrained muscle memory and intuitive sense of what needs to happen with this canopy mm. before you die. Um, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That that's. I don't know if this is a question you got, and, and both y'all can probably give some input. But what are the things that you can do? to control your canopy. I mean, like the only thing I can think of when my canopy is opening and not going where I want it to go. The only thing I can think of is like pulling on risers. Is there, is there, am I for, oversimplifying? Is there no, other no, things? No, no, that's, that's the typical yes. answer for everybody. The first answer is the harness using the body. Okay. Through the, through the opening phase. Okay. Learning how to fly the, fly the harness while the parachute's still inflating. That's a big one. Um, Can I've you got, give me give yeah, me a little bit of give me a little bit of coaching on that? What does that mean? Like while I'm still belly to earth, or am I more in an upright position, or both? Both during the transition, primarily during okay. that transition from belly to sitting, and yeah. then sitting very equal in the harness, not okay. letting not leaning one way or the other in that situation. So being That's actually being part. conscientious of what my body is doing. Absolutely, and That's kind of hard to jumping, do in base jumping. That is the most important thing. Okay. Yeah, keep that canopy flying straight. I mean, obviously risers are, are going to help you, but I think um, one of the things that helped me, and I, I don't know if this is the, if Jim would agree with this, but um, over the years I've gotten different canopy coaching, uh, had different canopy coaches, and one of them suggested, um, and this was on Hop and Pops when there's nobody else around. I'm I'm literally the only Hop and Pop in the sky, Jason. Go out and pitch and close your eyes and fly that canopy straight. Um, and it was, I thought it was very helpful for understanding my shifts in the harness and how they were going to help my canopy, even as Jim said, before my hands were on the risers, um, which uh, I think helps in literally every day, every deployment, trying to keep my canopy flying straight. Hold on. Can you, what, what did you, when did you close your eyes and what did you feel and learn? What, what do you mean? That's interesting. Well, you, you're getting no visual feedback. So did you close, close your eyes before you pitch? Like as you were pitching basically somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Reach okay. back, get your handle, pitch, close your eyes and then try and keep your canopy flying straight. Um, and you're going to start to understand and feel the shifts in the harness what does it feel like huh. when the canopy turns? What are the inputs that I can get with my legs and my body? How, how am I controlling the risers? And it, 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 I thought it helped me become more intuitive about being a good canopy pilot from the, like it clears the bag and I want to start flying it. Wow. That's, I mean, obviously, like you said, you were the only person in the sky. Like <laughs> I, I, I do not recommend that when there's anybody else on the load, yeah. any, or the, on the hop and pop, you are the yeah. only person in the sky. And so closing your eyes allowed you to really feel every move like you, you're able to focus more on that right huh. you take away the that's visual and you start paying attention to the other things interesting hmm. part, part of the flight one curriculum uh, obviously I'm, I'm a flight one instructor have been for almost 10 years now part of the curriculum both in sport and in our military curriculum is that we have them practice the first phase of the flare uh, at one time with their eyes closed 
we make them check all around them, you know, tra uh -huh. traffic altitude position, make sure there's nobody right by them. And we have them do a couple of them where they're using their eyes. Then we have them do one, at least one with their eyes closed to feel the difference in the harness, to feel mm. the difference in the airflow and the, and the extra little bit of G's that your body gets as you rotate through that, through that mm. pitch access. Mm. So, um, even though it's like, like Jira said, not something you want everybody doing <laughs> on a regular basis, but in yeah. a controlled environment, it is, it, it does help. Now we don't have anybody doing it on opening. Sure. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's a great exercise though. I like the idea. Yeah. Um, so Jim, next question. And, um, for those of you out there, I, I, um, one of the people that was working with Jim until recently was, a a young Canadian jumper. I mean, he's not super young anymore. Benoit LeMay. Um, Ben is a part of a trio of brothers that are all very experienced in, in skydiving, tremendous competitors, uh, Ben, Martin, and Vince. And um, I think Vince is out of the sport, but Ben and Martin are still very active in the sport. I think it, Martin's working for Flight One. Is that right? I saw him. Yeah, yeah, yeah he works for Flight um, One. He's also a firefighter ben, now. Yeah, Ben Benoit moved over to um, uh, working for, uh, I think, uh, Fly for Life. Um, mm. But... I saw Ben down in Sebastian, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and he was a tremendous VFS competitor, very talented flyer. Um, and he started talking about getting into crew. And I said, really? Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's great. I'm having a great time. My first first day, like third jump, I got into a seven-person rap. Uh, I just, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> kind of cringed. It was a weather hold in Sebastian, as they have sometimes. And, and then he... He told me an anecdotal story, which I'm hoping that you can you can share with us, Jim, about um, crew guys on a weather hold discovering potential problems with hook knives. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's been several times where, where people have like, hey, have you ever used a knife? Most people never use it. even crew guys. Not not very many of us have actually got to use the knife. Right. And and a lot of us have stories about trying to use the knife. <laughs> breaking knives, uh, but almost everybody in canopy formation has a story about trying about trying to use a knife and breaking it. So yeah. anybody who's a competitor doesn't use plastic knives. We all cut metal, you know, for that reason um, because they do break. And so uh, several several guys one day during a weather hold, they're like, "All right, let's see what let's everybody pull out a, your hook knife and let's see what you can cut." And so they started putting up, you know, a couple lines at a time and seeing how people were cut. People were snapping knives, twisting blades, you know, and just all kinds of crazy stuff. And everybody's like, okay, here's the thing. A hook knife is a precision instrument. Use it with precision. A lot of people were like hacking at the lines or hacking at, at webbing and stuff like that. And not really, it's not effective that way. So it kind of evolved, but my take on it is I now, because I do this, I do a lot of seminars on this. Uh, my take on it is I tell people, Hey, never slash with a hook knife. You pluck, pluck, pluck. Anything under tension, it's going to cut real easy. Anything not under tension, you have to put some tension on it to cut it, but be careful because once you start moving that knife and it's, and it, and it's, and it keeps going, you can cut a lot of things really fast that you may not have wanted to cut. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. what happened is 
everybody had a very eye-opening experience breaking knives and hacking at stuff. And then once they calmed down and did it with precision, huge difference. So do you, do you have a, a hook knife that you would recommend? Anyone that's a metal handle. Okay. Yeah. And typically single blade, um, the ones that have two blades in them like that, mm -hmm. um, they, they can twist, they can twist and the blades can separate and okay. stuff gets stuck between them. So any type of a single blade metal knife. Okay. So two, two blades is not necessary and a metal, metal, metal handle, ha yeah. handle a frame or whatever you yeah. call it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And now there may be carbon fiber ones now that are, that are just as good. I haven't tried mm -hmm. them, um, but you definitely don't want, you want one that's, that's not going to break in cold weather. You know, people have broken them off, especially being, you know, in the colder air, the plastic ones break pretty easy. So do Jim, do you have any, I don't want to say tricks because I, I don't think it's a trick, but how do you keep calm in a terrifying, you know, how, how do you, how do you keep your wits about you? You know, like that's a very scary, there's a lot going on. Like it's easy to just freak out and lose your mind. Right. Like, so yeah. what, what do you do? How do you, and I think this can, I, I hope that this type of thing can serve people not just in canopy work, you know, relative work, but wraps, but just any yeah. type of emergency situation. How do you keep calm and think clearly? That's a, that's a great question. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the military have been studying that for about a century or so now. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my best advice for that is that I think when most people are placed in a life-threatening situation or one that they're, they perceive to be life-threatening, uh, we have fight or flight. That's our, that's our instinct, right? And so most people's first instinct is to either, either start really going crazy and pulling on things or pulling the cutaway handle. Mm. Um, I've unfortunately watched uh, almost a dozen people bounce mm. uh, because they pulled the cutaway handle in the wrong situation. Yeah. Um, they panicked, total panic, and pulled the handle. Um, I think the biggest advice for people is that if people do become involved in an entanglement with small, fast canopies near the ground, you know, all you can do is get your reserve out. You don't have time to pull a cutaway handle. When you're under a grand, you don't really have time to pull a cutaway handle. You just have time to get more fabric out. And that's a big mistake people make is pulling that handle under a grand. Um, so I think the one thing that uh, can really help people is to know that if it does happen, staying calm is your only chance. That if you start panicking and, and, and just, you know, screaming and yanking and banking, nothing's going to happen. Try to get something to fly, get something over your head, whether you got to pull a reserve and then try to make it fly or whatever but knowing when not to pull that cutaway handle and that the cutaway handle is not always your life saving. That's not mm -hmm. your way out. And mm -hmm. in lower situations, it's usually uh, your demise. Yeah. So I don't know how best to answer that. I know for me, some people uh, in high speed, scary situations have a natural calm. I'm kind of mm -hmm. one of those people. So I think that's part of the reason I've done some of the things I've done is I have a little bit more calmness in cer certain situations that maybe than other people, 
But I also think a lot of skydivers are like that because hmm. we're used to operating in high speed, high stress, fast decision making situations, you know, hmm. um, yeah. not everybody, but and not every, all skydivers are the same. We all skydive differently. You know, we have our different yeah. things that we like and how we do it. Um, so my big, biggest advice is just don't don't automatically pull the handle. Hmm. Check it out. Try to start start communicating. Communication is hmm. everything. If you can communicate. Yeah, so I, I, Jim gives a seminar at the at the end of uh, a lot of our courses that we work together um, about this kind of situation, and um, I think I've sat through at least three, maybe four of those seminars, and they're they're very similar. Um, you know, he goes over the same ground, and I think one of the th one of the things that I I've taken away um, in addition to the adding fabric, the, the cutaway handle is not necessarily your friend. Um, staying calm. Um, communicating uh, uh, communication being a huge thing um that they they do talk in specific ways about um if handles are going to be pulled it is specific verbiage am i right jim yeah there is for sure it took us a long time in the canopy formation world to kind of narrow this down but we made a lot of mistakes for a lot of years one of the first ones is we would use the word don't don't cut away. Don't cut away. No one ever heard the word don't. Everyone mm. always did exactly what you just said not to do. So we stopped using the word don't because it didn't work. Um, then we also started very specifically um, saying that the first, the most important communication that anyone can have when it happens, because we know it happened. All right. It's happened. We know it's happened. So we don't have to say what happened or you know how'd that happen we know it's happened so now we got to deal with it the most important thing is the altitude just start yelling the altitude if mm. i'm on the receiving end of that and you're yelling you know three thousand feet thirty five hundred feet whatever twenty five hundred i know how much time we have it gives me a time warning um also it the most important thing it tells me is that you didn't just freak out and panic that you're there with me and you're going to help me get out of this situation so that both of us can go home tonight. And so the altitude is the most critical. And then the other thing we're trying to get the world to do is to use the word cutaway as a command only. So in other words, if I'm ever in an entanglement, now in canopy formation, we always add the first name because there's sometimes multiple people that need to cut away. So we always add the first name to that word. Um, but we never use the word cutaway for ourselves. The word cutaway is always for the other jumper. That way there's no confusion. If I'm hearing the word cutaway, they're telling that jumper wants me to cut away. So if the jumper who's going to cut away first needs to cut away first and communicate that, you use everything but the word cutaway. All right, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. See you later. Bye-bye. I'm out of here. I'm leaving now. So they know what you're doing, and then you're not using that word cutaway so that you can go first. Now, we also use the word, um, if we don't like what somebody's doing uh, or what they are contemplating, we use the word stop. In English, that word comes through like a freight train. You can hear it through all the fabric rustling, through all the noise between the ears. <laughs> 
all of that, that, that word stop comes through. So those are kind of some of the real basic phrases is cut away as a command. Don't preface anything with the word don't. And altitude is the most important form of communication. I think something else that I, I've taken away from at least the, you know, when we're working with military guys, generally they have pretty big parachutes and Jim's emphasized many times, guys, two of us can survive this on one piece of fabric. And so to keep that in mind in those situations, even on sport canopies, if it happens and it was, you know, an accidental wrap and there's one good canopy guys, we can live through this. Uh, so let's, let's, Absolutely. You know, all the rules that he just talked about, but keeping in mind that, that it, it, as he said, chopping could be the wrong thing to do at that mm -hmm. moment. I've seen more people do the wrong thing than do the right thing. And I've seen several times now where two people landed on one parachute and walked away. Uh, once was at the world championships in Gop, France in 2003. I don't remember what country it was, but these guys were in a wrap. They were going in. Uh, they were tangled up really bad. One guy pulled his reserve. It didn't come out of the bag. The other guy pulls his reserve at about six, 700 feet. It opens at like two or 300 feet, catches both of them. And then they land in a tree and walk away. Um, I had teammates years ago. Uh, I'm not going to name all their names because they probably <laughs> don't want me to name them who were happened to be training at a drop zone up in New Jersey. And they were there early in the morning because canopy formation guys, we typically try to jump early because of the good air. Um, and they were practicing training and they had what we call a whirly gig where a canopy wrapped around one guy's leg, but then was still flying again. So now it's tied to the guy's leg, but they're still flying. And so uh, they didn't know the trick to get out of that back then. So they decided they had an argument about cutting away. And the guy goes, no, we can't cut away. There's no riggers on the drop zone. We'll be done jumping. We have to land it. <laughs> Priorities, man. <laughs> and so, that and guy, so they guy, landed it. That is hilarious. That guy's like, no, this is working. We're going to survive this. Like, totally. Totally. <laughs> and so they landed it and they got back on the airplane. There's no riggers on that. That is hilarious. <laughs> it's Dude. a true story, man. Totally different mindset. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Wow. Awesome. So what yeah, and, and on on bigger canopies, it's happened several times. There's even been um even on pretty small canopies, obviously you're on your 79, two people on that, and nobody's controlling it. That's probably not gonna end well. But you're on a 150, two people can land on a 150 and walk away or come back with not life-threatening injuries depending on how that landing goes mm -hmm. yeah cool well jim we normally keep it to about an hour we're a tiny bit over that now it's, just, it's not the end of the world but i know that um i know you've got some places um that you do share your information youtube channel and and uh so if, if people are interested in in finding out more what have you got for them well, right now I'm working on it. <laughs> I have a, I do have a, a web, a web page. It's a gravitypoweredflight.com. Um, right now there's not much on it, just some demo stuff. Um, but I'm going to put up my unusual canopy formation or my unusual canopy emergencies briefs. I have an hour long brief 
uh, really detailed on what to do with two parachutes out. And then I also have another hour-long brief, extremely detailed, on what to do in all forms of entanglement and what to do at different altitudes and different situations. Um, right now, I, I just need somebody to help me get it, get it all up. So I'm about to take a break from jumping. I, uh, 35 years ago, uh, I was jumping at the World Freefall Convention, doing the world biggest formation, the 144-way diamond with Roger Nelson. And I landed in a tire rut and I dislocated my right ankle and just mm. shredded all the soft tissues. So I didn't get to be on the world record because I was in the hospital getting my foot in traction. Well, 35 years later and another 23,000 jumps and, uh, and I wore out all the soft tissue that was left and it's down to bone on bone. So I'm having my ankle replaced in a week. Um, I'm looking forward to it because it's been hurting for about a year now. And uh, while I'm in recovery, I promise all of you, I'm going to get my stuff up on that web page so everyone can access it in small training blocks. Um, because it's a lot of information, and I think the blocks will be extremely helpful to everyone. Um, in addition to that, I've got uh, articles coming out in Skydive Magazine on dual deployments and on entanglements uh, in the next couple months. Say the website well, again, Jim. Gravitypoweredflight.com. Like I said, Thank there's you. not much on there right now, but it's uh, it's going to get we'll up to speed looking. here. Yeah. In about a month, I should have it up and running, looking really good. Yeah. Cool. And, and Jim, let, let me know if there's, if there's ways that I can help you with that. Um, I'd be happy I may to talk. I may talk with you offline about sure. that. Yeah. I, I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to help you do that, man. Cool. I, I want, I want people to have this information, you know, I mean, that's what we're all about trying to help everybody. So, and, so I, I do have a quick story if you got time. Yeah, we for sure. Absolutely. So no, go it's for it. the reason, it's the reason I do these briefs and I've been doing them since 1992, uh, unusual canopy, uh, emergencies and it's all about dual deployments and entanglements and the reason i do it is because i've seen so many people get hurt or killed because they did the wrong thing and just didn't know what to do hmm. um and so it all kind of started i was training with the with my team doing eight-way canopy formation uh over mid-america sport parachute club taylorville illinois and we had a wrap uh I, my buddy passed i passed through his lines and then the two of us separated. And so I climbed over his shoulders and jumped back out, going out the way I came in and uh, <laughs> following my risers out of the entanglement. And as I was getting up, going through his lines, I got snagged and I pulled real hard and I pulled myself free and I didn't know what I was snagged on. But then I looked up and I see a reserve pilot chute snaking between our, our canopies. And I'm like, oh my God, my teammates reserve is out and then we separated and as we separated i'm looking back and i see this free bag all tied up in in this guy's lines and this reserve pops out of it and it's attached to me it was my reserve what i thought was in the entanglement as i was climbing out oh. i snagged my own reserve ripcord and pulled it in the middle of the entanglement huge oh mistake goodness. huge mistake but the amazing invention the free bag saved my life right there. The greatest invention in skydiving is the free bag. Even better than the three ring. It has saved more lives. So anyway, my reserve comes out and it starts inflating. And I it's, it goes into a downplane. 
And I don't know why, but I grab my toggles and I go to half brakes and I go right back, right into a side-by-side, a perfect side-by-side. And I'm looking at my, and I'm panting, man. I'm, I am, I am amped up. When I saw that reserve out in the middle of that entanglement, I thought someone was going to die. And then when I saw it was mine, I thought it was me who was going to die. And uh, so I'm like, man, I just, I just dodged a bullet. That was a close call. And so I'm looking at it. I'm like, all right, looks perfect. And I got to go to my left to go to the airport. So I turn away from the reserve with my main using my toggles. And I go into a downplane. So as soon as it starts downplaning, I go back. And I'm like, all right, I need to get rid of this main. I look down. I'm over the biggest cornfield in freaking Illinois. And it's August. August corn. So it's 10 feet tall. This field is two miles by two miles. If I cut away the main, it's going to go into this cornfield never to be seen again. We're leaving for the world championships in China the next day, and we have no spare canopies. So I can't cut it away. I'm like, I got to fly it. I got to fly it back. (laughs) So then I figure out I can't go left. So I go 270 right, and I push the reserve all the way around until I'm flying back to to the airport. And uh, I'm like, wow, that was pretty cool. So I do a whole 360 again. I'm like, I can't believe how easy this is. I get to the airport. I'm at, uh, the, the rap happened at seven grand. I'm at two five now. I've been he's flying just this thing. For... He's just playing around with his he's like, well, this is a odd situation. But <laughs> I was thinking at any second I could pull it away if it did something weird, right? Uh, that's so then I look at it. I get over the airport. I'm at two five. All right, perfect. It's all got this big, long grass runway next to me. I'm like, all right, I'm going to drop the main right on that runway. And then I had the weirdest thing that has ever happened in my life. Back of my neck, all the hair stood up. And just I the, the feeling of death overcame me. I mean, the raw feeling of being killed is mm. what I thought would happen if I cut away the main. So now I'm freaking out. It's like, why am I thinking this? This is insane. Get rid of this main parachute, land the reserve. So I go to reach for the, you know, separate them and cut away. And it comes over even stronger. And now I'm freaked. Now I'm really freaked out. So I'm like, okay, somebody don't want me to cut this main away. Why? So I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. And then it's like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'm landing two parachutes. So when that reserve pilot chute came out, in the wrap it went through my right main riser and deployed my entire reserve through my right main riser but then the risers came up over my head and they were through one another like this instead of against one another like this but i didn't you know what he's talking about chris i didn't see it over my head like that. I think so. So if you had cut away, it would have just wrapped up. It would and, have slid all the way at my reserve, closed my reserve re- 100%, and I would have streamered in with half of a main parachute, and I would have been killed. Wow. So I decided to land two of them. I fly it in, bring it in, and I swear to God, I stood up dead center in the pea gravel. All my teammates are standing there, and they are screaming at me. You know, what the hell, Colin? What are you doing? We're leaving for the world championships and you're hot dog and you're playing games up there. And I'm like, no guys, look at it. And they're like, yeah, we saw. And then the, this hippie dude on our team, pretty cool cat. He's like, dude, 
dude, you can't cut that away. I'm like, <laughs> no shit. That's why I just landed two canopies. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I went back. I'm not a real, I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, but not, I don't really practice any specific religions. Um, but was it God? I don't know. It was it one of my dead friends. I don't know. Um, then I saw a documentary on Nova about intuition and what it really is and what it is. It's your subconscious mind seeing something that your conscious mind is not seeing. I think my subconscious mind saw the risers doing that instead of that. And my subconscious mind saw that that was, that was death. That was a death sentence, but my conscious mind never saw it. Mm. After I landed that day, I've been doing seminars on dual deployments and entanglements ever since. Mm. Oh, wow. I've heard that several times and it's a good story every freaking time. Yeah. You know, like I said, I watched the documentary and they've shown this fire fire chief in Ireland. His guys are running into this building, fighting this fire. And this camera is watching him on the street. It's the news station. And they're watching him. And then all of a sudden he picks up his radio and starts screaming for all seven guys to get out. Get out, get out now, everyone out. Drop your hoses, run, run, run. And they're like, no, boss, we got this. He's like, get out now. As the last guy stepped out, the entire building collapsed. Hmm. The news crew is looking at this fire chief going, how did you know? He goes, I have no idea. I just knew. They go back and look at the footage. There were seven little signs that told him what was about to happen. But he didn't put them together in his conscious mind. His yeah. subconscious mind did. So wow. trust mm. your intuition. It's usually right. Mm. Sorry, wow. I, I had to tell you that one. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's good, good man. That's great. That's right great. On. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Very good. Well, you've done it again. You didn't. You, it's not a wasted hour. <laughs> you wasted hour. another perfectly good. Uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, I do that seminar, I tell people, I hope I just wasted an hour of your life and you yeah, never need yeah. any of this information. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. No, we're, we're so glad if you've, if you've stuck around and listened to us, we're glad that you're here. We hope that it's been a, a benefit to you and a blessing that you've learned something that uh, we've, helped you think about some new things, maybe giving you some new information, something that you hadn't even considered or thought about before. Jim, thank you so much for joining us, man. What, what, a, what, Guys, what a benefit. Yeah. Thank you, know. you for having me on and thank you for uh, helping me spread the gospel. Yeah. Amen. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're really trying to help the skydiving community. Um, and I would love to talk to you some more, Jim, about how we can partner together, work together, maybe how um, Crave can, can promote what you're doing and who you are, your camps, your courses, anything that you're doing. Uh, awesome. Because that, that's what, I mean, yeah, yeah. that's one of the things that I think we all, we, we love every skydivers. We love the skydiving world and family because I like, this is what we do for one another. Yeah. We, we take care of one another and it's Absolutely. just so awesome. It's so special. And, you know, for a long time I started skydiving in, well, my very first skydive was in 2003 it was a tandem. Um, but when I, I got my license and really started skydiving in 2013 and then really got into it in like 2017, 2018, 
but just for a long time, I, I kind of saw all these people like, you know, Jay Russ or Luis Pernetto or di different people that, that I thought, you know, they were just kind of like the untouchables. Like they were so up there and so advanced. And, but then when I started reaching out and talking to people, like everyone is so nice and so genuine and so caring and just down to earth and, and people, I don't care if they have, you know, like, like Pete Allen, he's got 36,000 mm -hmm. jumps or whatever. He is so happy to talk to anybody Absolutely. and help people be better, help people be safer, help people grow and progress. And like, I just, I love that about the skydiving community and that we get to help make that even more. Um, so I'm so thankful for, for you being, a, being here with us tonight, for sharing these stories, sharing your information. And, and I hope that there is more and more opportunity for us to do this together. Um, I look forward so, to it. Thank you, man. I, I think yeah. this is great. Yeah. We're a small yeah. family, skydivers. We're a small community. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we do we do and see some pretty special things uh, together. We experience some pretty special things together that yeah. not a lot of ordinary humans get to experience. And I think that does make us closer and make yeah. us want to share. Yeah, for sure. I am um, on a regular basis when I'm, you know, I'm out of the drop zone, I get on the plane and we're riding the plane to altitude. I, I look down and I see all these cars driving down on the highway. And I just think, man they're missing out. Like they <laughs> yes, don't, they they don't I, I feel, I really, it makes me feel bad for them. Like they don't even know how much joy and fun and just the pleasure that we get to experience, not, not just falling out of a plane, but together and the, the community, the joy, like sharing a jump with your friends and landing on the ground and just like being so excited. It's just so fantastic, man. It's so great. It is. It's a unique experience. Yeah. The original extreme sport. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it sure is. Well, cool. All right. Well, thanks for being here. Right, like we've said before, reach reach out to us. If you're watching, if you're in the audience, please send us a message. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, through the Crave website. You can reach out to Jay Russ um, at Skydab Chicago or at Arizona or wherever you see him. Me, if you see me at the drop zone. Um, we, we would love to hear from you. We'd love your comments, questions, videos, topics that, that you want us to discuss. Please share with us, write us a letter, a comment, whatever. Um, but we're, uh, we're going to keep doing this, keep trying to help everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see, see you guys in the sky and maybe jump together. Crave, do more, be better. Thanks, you guys. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jim. Awesome.